Hey, Sandra. Hi, Lisa. Kristen. What's up, girl? Are y'all ready? We're ready. Oh, yeah, Woo! you know we are. Then let's do it. Let's go to the movies, ladies. Woohoo! Welcome to Lisa, Sandra, and Kristen Go to the Movies, a new podcast where three movie geeks, that would be us, Woo-hoo. talk to award-winning directors, actors, screenwriters, costume designers, and more about their work. We also dish on their favorite movies, movie moments, and share our own faves, too. I'm Lisa France, and I'm a senior writer for CNN Entertainment. You might know me as the person who wrote that article about Keanu Reeves. Yes, that article. If you don't know, just Google it. (laughs) And I'm Sandra Gonzalez. I'm also a senior reporter for CNN covering TV and film. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, formerly of the Movie Date podcast and currently co-host on the podcast by the book. I'm also the author of So You Want to Start a Podcast, which hits stores in August. This is the official podcast of CNN's new TV series, The Movies, which you can watch on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. I've seen the series, and it's amazing. Oh, it's so good. So after you're done listening to our podcast, you should definitely check that out. Now, we've got a great interview with Academy Award-winning costume designer Ruth Carter coming up. But before we get to that, we're going to play a little game um, called My Five Movies. So here's how it goes. Imagine you're stranded on a desert island or you're stuck in that Twilight Zone episode where the apocalypse has happened and you're the sole survivor. You obviously have a TV in this scenario. Um, (laughs) You're going to have to choose five movies that you can watch for the rest of your life. Only five. And we're going to ask, which five do you choose? Lisa, you're my first victim. I know it's not going to be easy. No No pressure. pressure. No pressure. But we're going to try. So, Lisa, tell me, what are your five movies? Oh, hot seat, hot seat. My five movies are Goodfellas. Oh, that's so good. The Godfather. Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Love Jones. And East of Eden. I'm supposed to get theme here. Yes. So, but tell me what you think the theme is. Okay. So, this is confusing because the first two movies clearly say you're into mob movies. Or you are in the mob. Or I'm in the mob. Or I'm a mobster who's into mob movies. (laughs) That's a little cliche. (laughs) The second movie says that you love international films and indie films and high art and food. And food. Love food. Love food. That food food scene in Goodfellas, like, I've always wanted to cut garlic with a razor blade. Yes, I've tried it. It's not easy. I've tried it. It's not easy. It's not as easy as it looks. Number four. Love Jones was number four? Number four was Love Jones. Oh, my God. That's just a great romantic, I mean. But not sensing the connection to Goodfellas. Not at all? No. Okay. Keep going. Number five. Number five was. East of Eden. Oh, James Dean. James Dean. Love me some James Dean. Yes, but that's the only thing I can really think of. is, And James Dean doesn't remind me of any of the other movies. Yeah. So all the films are about passion, mm. relationships, family, mm. yes. complications. Yes. And they all involve food in some type of way. Oh. They all have a, you know, a little bit of food sexiness. <laughs> I love a good food sexy scene. Oh, Wait, I, in East of Eden, that. what's the food, food scene that you're thinking of? Well, I think James Dean is a snack. <laughs> <laughs> he is yummy. That he is counts. Yummy, He's right? so delicious. <laughs> oh my! That is so good, and it's tricky because I would never have guessed that at first. But they are all food and family movies. Yes, they are. He'd all be low part. calorie. <laughs> Wasn't he like a not tall guy? James Dean? Yeah. He was tall in my eyes. <laughs> he was tall in We should spirit. note that all three of us are 5'3 or under. Exactly. <laughs> right. As if we could Who discriminate. Who am I to judge anybody's height? Exactly. <laughs> James Dean was boss, though. I mean, he just felt big on screen. He just felt like, wait for it, a giant. Oh! You see what I did right there? Oh! You did it! 
Giant third, was one of his movies, people. His hey. third and final film. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. I'm so clever. <laughs> All right. I love this game. And Sandra, I cannot wait to hear your five movies. I, I'm dying to hear. I know we're all dying to hear. And I can't wait to tell you what mine are. And hey, we want you guys listening out there to play along too. So tell us, if you could watch only the same five movies for the rest of your life, what would they be? Go on Twitter and use the hashtag My5Movies. That's my, the number five, movies. And take us at CNN Podcasts so we can see what you chose. All right. Now, on to the main event. Let's bring on our superstar guest. Ruth Carter is an Academy Award-winning costume designer. She has been in the movie industry for over three decades and worked on over 40 films, including Do the Right Thing, Lee Daniels' The Butler, Selma, and How Stella Got a Groove Back, to name just a few. In 2019, Ruth made history when she became the first African-American woman to win an Oscar for Best Costume Design. That award was, of course, for her work on the blockbuster mega-hit Black Panther. Ruth is currently on the set of her latest project, Coming to America 2, and it was recently announced that in 2020 she will be receiving a much-deserved star on Hollywood's Walk of Fame. Ruth Carter, we're so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I think we have to start by talking about Black Panther. It was such a groundbreaking film in so many ways. And one of those ways, of course, was the costuming. Can you tell us a bit about your process as a costume designer and specifically the integral role you played in helping to bring the director Ryan Coogler's vision of Wakanda to life? Well, first of all, there's a a connection that you have with the director. Um, Sometimes it's unspoken. It's an understanding of... um, African-American history in this case and the African diaspora. Um, I felt that uh, during my interview, I had a connection to Ryan's aesthetic. Um, Our conversation was easy. It was informative. It was joyful. And I think that in terms of process is an important step that you connect to a person's spirit and their artistry. Um, And from there, you are given a script and you meet other people like Hannah Beekler and you start sharing. You share information. You're seeking information. It's a little scary in the beginning because it's a it's a it's an empty canvas and you really want to connect and paint, you know, this beautiful tapestry or um, and so we share information. She tells me where she's at um, within the process. Process because they start developing the story, especially something like Black Panther, very early on. Um, and so I have a lot of catching up to do. Um, and so I'm very anxious about the catching up. And so I'm listening a lot. I'm observing a lot. And I'm thinking about what I uh, feel that I can bring to what they're already beginning to develop. Um, they they uh, produced a, like a manuscript of uh, Wakanda, um, the different tribes, the different districts, what it looked like. And so I take that and I study it. I share it with my crew. We all study it. And then we start um, chipping away at the beauty. And, uh, you know, most of this was led by um, our affinity for um, 
telling the story of Africa in its uh, multi-dimensional way. You know, it's not this big monolithic place. It's, you know, all of the tribes and exploring them and bringing that beauty and artistry to life. You know, Ruth, I love that you mentioned not depicting Africa as a monolith. And I think something else you did so expertly is not depict women as a monolith. They are not just sex symbols. They are not just there to be looked at. And I think that personally speaking, and I've seen a lot of superhero movies, I don't think I've ever seen women superheroes who are so phenomenally well-rounded. How did you make sure that that came through in their costumes? Well, um, part of the understanding that I uh, just spoke about is uh, being um, uh, a part of something different, being um, uh, interested in changing the view of uh, what people expect into a more powerful and positive way. And honestly, um, that opinion or that mode of thinking was led by Ryan Coogler, who um, said to me, we want them to be taken seriously. We want the women to lead. We want the women to be powerful and beautiful all at the same time. Um, And it was really wonderful to hear that come from, you know, the top of our uh, chain there, because, you know, that's what everything else springs from. And you you proceed to craft uh, the costume in the most powerful, the most beautiful way. Um, there is a lot of involvement, uh, especially with the Dora Milaje costume. Uh, Marvel is very hands-on. I've said they're like the CIA. You have to um, <laughs> really <laughs> you have to really be uh, 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 knowledgeable about the way that they like to operate. And when you fold your your artistry into that, it actually does work. So um, the sharing, the collaboration, the different artists that are involved in in, um, how the costume looks uh, in some ways um, does help. Uh, You know, I don't want to be working on something all by myself. You know, I really feel like it's uh, everyone has a stake in um, evaluation or just contributing to um, what we're trying to accomplish with the, with regards to that. I know I went off on a tangent there. <laughs> no, we love your tangents. Your tangents are better than someone else's scripted remarks. So please, tangent on. Okay, okay. But I heard you also used three D printing in the costuming as well. Can you can you talk about yes. how like how you used that art form? Yes. Um, you know, there was a lot of um, thought about the queen. Um, one of uh, one of my opinions was that if she was to wear a crown in Wakanda and a, um, you know, she would have the best craftsmen uh, available that would create her things. It's a forward thinking um, nation. It's highest in technology, leading in technology. So if she were to wear a crown, yes, it it could be handmade by, you know, craftsmen, but it also could be 3D printed and be perfect. So I, I thought, you know, if she was going to wear the cylindrical shape, 
shape. The Ishikolo has this, you know, shape that uh, can be perfect. And I thought that the only way to make that shape perfect would be to 3D print it, to develop it on the computer, um, which we did, and um, printed it in Belgium. And uh, six months later, it took about that long, we had her crown and her shoulder mantle all 3D printed. Wow. But it makes me curious, though, like when you see these costumes, it must be a trip to see any costume that you make worn at Halloween by people who just loved, loved that costume. <laughs> but do you also get annoyed at like, oh, the crown does not look like that? <laughs> oh, no. I, it's kind of like a celebration, you know. Um So, you know, people needed to connect. And when they connect, it feels like an accomplishment. You know, it feels good. I bet. While you were working on Black Panther, did you at all have any idea that it was going to be such a cultural phenomenon? Um, Like Sandra just talked about, everyone was wearing, you know, the costumes even to see the movie originally. They hadn't even seen the film yet. And they were already trying to copy your work. Did you know it was going to be such a big film? Oh, uh, I don't think you can predict that if we could. That would be amazing. Sign me up. But you can't predict that. And you don't even want to have that kind of thing in your mind. Um, Because I think it's a distraction to, you know, what you're trying to. There's a lot of decisions you have to make. You have to be focused, uber focused. But you can't imagine um, being on a set like that and not thinking that you're doing something special. Um, We had a photo session with the royal family. I call it the royal family, the royal Wakandan family. Family. So we had Black Panther and Ramon, Queen Ramonda and Shuri and the Dor- um, Okoye, Dora Milaje, you know, Nakia, Michael B. Jordan, as, um, Killmonger and Zuri, all of them, the royal family. And uh, that's when it dawned on me when I saw them all standing there together to take a photo on one of our sets. I was like, wow, I was jumping up and down inside thinking this is wonderful. Well, I follow you on Instagram. Actually, I stalk you on Instagram. Let me be correct. Let me be honest. Um, and Uh-oh. I know <laughs> I know that you're active on social media. Have you ever seen someone try to replicate a costume and you just had to maybe, you know, say something or give them a little like? I give them a, I give them a thumbs up. At Halloween, I see the Baps girls at Halloween, and I'm like, "Yeah, go get your get your Baps on." Um, A lot of artists talk about studying the craft of those who have come before them. Are there costume designers who have inspired you in your work? Yes, um, I feel like I uh, first learned color palette from Ann Roth because I studied her films like Places of the Heart, Danny Glover and Sissy mm. Spacek, and I really loved those costumes so much. I began to just look at all of her films, and I noticed, you know, how she handled color within the composition of the film, and uh, so she was a big inspiration for me. Um, as a costume designer and a storyteller, your mentors come from the most unlikely places. They don't necessarily mm-hmm. all come from co- other costume designers. Um, so Spike Lee, I would say, you know, gave me the bravery um, to create and, um, you know, was very supportive for a long time with 14 films. So uh, my mentors are, you know, all shapes and sizes. Mm, yeah, Spike Lee just 
his aesthetic is so completely him. Yes, it is. Yes. And mm-hmm. when you yeah, see a Spike yeah. Lee movie, you know it's you know a Spike, it's a Spike Lee, Lee. Yes, right? Exactly. You know it is. And he makes bold choices with color. I mean, with the exception of She's Gotta Have It, which is black and white. Right. <laughs> but, but he makes such bold choices. And, you know, sometimes yeah. those can be risky. When you look at the risks that other costume designers make, do you ever think, oh, gosh, that's just crazy, but it's crazy enough to work? Um, I see risks. It's not easy to take risks uh, as a costume designer because it's not just you that makes a lot of decisions. You have a studio, you have a director, you have a lot of people who, um, you know, it's not, it's a big money game, I guess, when you have $20 million, $70 million, you know, to create a, a piece of work. You, you know, not always taking risks, but there are some amazing risks out there, which I think was a collective uh, decision, maybe. Um, Mary Queen of Scots, they used a lot of denim to make all of those mm. vintage Um, beautiful pieces and denim is like a sturdy fabric it's dyeable it's it shapes well so it was a smart choice so you know risks are you know are not easy to to do you know uh, crafting your your voice like spike lee does is not as easy as it may seem can i ask you about your personal aesthetic like what what do Mm -hmm. you like to wear oh my god I'm the anti-fashion. I'm the anti-fashion. You have to ask June Ambrose. I love everything she wears. She's oh, amazing you. in her style. I'm um I'm your everyday girl. I like to wear t-shirts and yoga pants and blazers and a little bit of a twist with a little African or a little Asian or a little whatever I'm feeling. Um, I'm pretty simple in that way. I like to be comfortable. I have to be comfortable, you know. I'm up at four in the morning, out by 5.30, so I want to feel like I'm still in bed. So my clothes have to be cozy. Was there ever a movie that influenced your personal sense of style or even just made you aware that costume design was a thing like when you were young, like a young girl or or growing up? Well, um, not specifically, because I didn't decide to be a costume designer till I was a junior in college. I wanted to work with special ed. I wanted to be an artist. I was drawing. So, um, you know, I could have been influenced later, like by Annie Hall. I remember having a big men's hat that I would wear to class. <laughs> this, like plaid dress and boots and I felt very people were saying you're very Annie Hall and then I saw the film and I was like yeah that's me <laughs> but you were doing it first is right. the point so Annie Hall Annie Hall yeah. was actually very Ruth Cart exactly <laughs> yeah in college I think yeah but she was definitely before me I was influenced by her you know and what made you shift though from wanting to do art to wanting to make clothes Well, I kept thinking as a special ed major that I wanted to work with theater for the deaf and do, you know, mime, pantomime. I was I was amazed at sign language. I thought it was just amazing how they could talk with their hands and their eyes. It was so expressive, Um, but it was leading me that was pushing me back into theater. And I, you know, dabbled in it in high school, you know, as all kids do with, you know, high school plays and summer school programs. So it was uh, something I wasn't unfamiliar with. And I would hang out with, 
you know, other theater students because uh, I'd audition uh, as a special ed major. And then I just decided my junior year that I would change to uh, speech and drama. It was called at, ha- at Hampton University. It was Hampton Institute then. And, uh, yeah, I switched and uh, never looked back. All right. Well, as much fun as we're having, we need to take a quick break. More of our conversation with Ruth Carter after this. Welcome back. We're still talking to the legendary Ruth Carter. Ruth, we were talking earlier about Spike Lee, and you've worked on over 10 of his films so far in your career. We like to talk about firsts on this podcast. So could you tell us about the first time you met Spike Lee? Uh, yes. Uh, Robbie Reed uh, went to college with me, went to Hampton. We were dorm mates and she knew of Spike uh, this filmmaker in New York who you know was doing his thing it was the early 80s I guess it was like 80, 45 and uh, he was coming out to California and um, Robbie introduced us um, this was before She's Gotta Have It had gone to Con Film Festival and he um, came to see A Night for Dancing, uh, this uh, dance performance that was happening uh, in a small dance studio in South Central L.A. on Adams and Adams in La Brea. <laughs> and it was very popular. Uh, I was a costume designer. Um and, you know, I was like the hooker crook kind of costume designer. I was working at the L.A. LA Theater Center in Los Angeles uh, in the costume shop. So I had access to uh, their stock. And um, this was a, a, a big performance to the mu- music of Stevie Wonder. And so all those great songs, all that great storytelling. Um, so I would, you know, beg and borrow um, to get that that uh, production up with Otis Salid, who was the choreographer. Spike came to see it. And um, afterwards, we all kind of hung out. You know, we were young. We were young filmmakers with a dream. And uh, I remember he was talking to me about getting more film experience because I was coming out of theater. I uh, was mostly focused on that. And he said, go to USC or UCLA and sign up in the um, film department to volunteer to work on someone's senior thesis project. And um, he said, you'll see, you know, how a set works. You'll be working with all the same equipment as the big movies. And uh, you, you'll see what that medium is like. So you should try it. And so I did. I went over to USC. I signed up. And uh, on Saturdays, I was on a film set hearing, you know, Quiet on the Set for the first time. It was small. It was a small production, small independent production. I just remember looking around and sort of taking it in and thinking, wow, you know, I had just come from opera and theater where we were doing, you know, big uh, productions, the English Cat and Shakespeare and Moliere. I was a costume designer on at, at Hampton for my last two years. That's all I did. And so I felt like this was a medium I could actually tackle. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we met. He says all the stories I hear about Spike Lee paint him as such like a natural mentor. I love that. 
Um, I think he really cared about it. Yeah. Uh-huh. So many of his films have also become so so classic, obviously. But I was wondering, what do you think are some of the things that make a movie a classic? Well, um, let's see. Some of the great classics. Um, well, uh, there's an aesthetic. There's definitely a uh, direction, an art direction that includes sets, costumes, acting. Um, there's a good story. Uh, I feel like there's a bit of authenticity to uh, the look, whether it's, you know, high, high art or, you know, crazy comedy. There's an authenticity to it. Um, people enjoy it. And um, maybe that's what makes up a classic. And maybe there's also that that element that none of us know and a classic is made. Mm. Yeah, that's cerebral. I like yeah. it. <laughs> now, is there a movie that you think deserves to be a classic but isn't seen that way? And it doesn't have to be a movie you've worked on, Ruth, but something okay. out there that you think really deserves more iconic attention. Well, there are some great classics, Boys in the Hood, Do the Right Thing. There's some great classics that, you know, I'm like rooting uh, because they are. Uh, and maybe, I, I don't know, do we consider Lady Sings the Blues a classic? Oh, yes. that should be if it's not. That's so good. Yeah, that yes. would be one. Diana Ross With Billy through. D. Williams and yes. that hat. Yes. Oh. But I have to go back for a second to Boys in the Hood. I think we understand that as a classic now, but we may not have 10 years ago right. even. Right, yeah. It's come into its when own. When it was made, no. Mm-hmm. So yes. I would do the right thing. I think thing. it's risen there. I think yes. it's definitely risen to that status. Well sure. deserved. Yeah. And it's yeah. interesting that we should bring yeah. that film up. We should be talking about that because you worked on a number of movies that chronicle the lives and experiences of African Americans. So even with the success mm. of movies like How Stella Got a Groove Back and Malcolm X and Black Panther, there's still a lot of under-representation of people of color on screen. I'm curious, when was the first time that you, yes, absolutely, yes. (laughs) A little bit. I'm curious, Mm -hmm. when was the first time that you can remember watching a movie and feeling like you were seeing someone on screen who looked like you and reminded you of yourself? Um, And I think that look like you and reminding you of yourself is, you know, a broader term. It's not like um, it's one to one, like, oh, she has my hair color, my eye color, my skin color. It's more of that journey that a film takes you on that represents who you are. So I I would say that my earliest memory would be something like Claudine. I remember watching Claudine and, you know, just the, the fun story that it was, the single parent with the kids and the romance with James Earl Jones. It yes. was just one of those feel-good feel good films that you felt like you knew that, you knew that world. Diane Carroll, right? Diane Carroll. Yes. Yes. I mean, classic. Cornbread Early Me, another one. Great film. And, 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 and maybe like, you know, you know, those 70s exploitation films, you know, I feel like we I enjoyed a lot of them, you know, like Foxy Brown. And for those of our listeners who don't know what Cornbread Earl and Me is about, can you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, you're going to make me like go back. <laughs> <laughs> we want you to go deep. I mean, he was deep. a young kid. I, I don't I can't I couldn't really recount it. I really couldn't. But I just know I remember seeing it and loving it and relating to it. You know, do you have an issue with this term when people talk about black exploitation films? Does that bother you at all? Because I have a tendency. It I does. understand it's what that means. It's hard to say. It's yes, it's like it is black exploitation, like. Sh- 
What? What? <laughs> who right. Did you that? Can, who did right, that? You just, you just think of it as part of the I canon of black films. Did I? Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it, but it is what it is. It's aggressive. It's aggressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what it was. I think it was, it meant that, you know, other people were benefiting off of our stories. And, you know, we're only now getting to the point where we're benefiting from our own stories and the way that we should. So important. Yeah. All right, we're going to switch gears now, Ruth, and take a moment to just geek out about movies a little bit. So let's start with some of your favorite movies and movie moments. A lot of movie lovers have a go-to movie when they're sick or laid up on the couch or they need cheering up. It's like the film equivalent of Chicken Soup. It's not always a good movie. Sometimes it's an embarrassingly bad movie. (laughs) Most of the time it is. It usually is. Do you have a movie that you turn to in times of need like that? Hmm. Um. I like the uplifting feeling that Color Purple gives me. Oh. I can sing that Shook Avery song when she's marching to the church. Maybe God is trying to, to make tell up you something. Her daddy. Yes. yes. And I can skip around the house to that one. Oh, that movie makes me nothing but cry, though. And I, I cry and cry. And it's a great film. And I love how every yeah. African American. And a good cry, woman, doesn't that make you feel good? It does. Absolutely. You're right. You're it's right. cathartic. It is. Every black woman I know who gets married posts that picture on Instagram and says, I'm married now from the color purple. <laughs> I, I, okay, I, don't I, make me cackle. Yeah, <laughs> I promise you that's a thing. Every time I read that, I'm like, oh, wow. I don't. I have no idea where I that came from. Now. I was married now. <laughs> it feels good to say it. I don't trust black people who haven't seen The Color Purple. I'm just going to put that out there. I just have to say that. Okay. What about if you haven't seen The Lion King? If you've never seen The Lion King. Do those people exist? Right. Who is that? Do you know? Can we get names? <laughs> yeah, give me their address. I've never I don't met know, anyone I don't know anyone like that. <laughs> no one. And if you did, you would tell us their name, give us their address, so we can I go would. like save yep, this person. Social security number. Yeah. <laughs> What's one of your favorite romantic couples from a movie? Romantic couples from a movie would be. Um, there's some good romantic couples. Wow, 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 wow. Um, I like. Oh, it has to be a movie, right? So I can't say Sterling K. Brown in Us. I can't say. <laughs> we'll okay. allow it as an All honorable right. mention. Okay, good. Um, I, what, I'm gonna. Say, I was thinking Love Jones, but that's just me. I was thinking, you know, love Jones. Nia, Ooh, Nia come on, love yes, Jones. yeah, Nia and um, what was his name? <laughs> I'm seeing his face. I can't remember Lorenz his Tate. Name. Lorenz, Lorenz Tate, Tate. Thank you. Oh my Lorenz gosh, Tate. I just I just interviewed him a couple months ago. I'm so sorry, Lorenz Tate. I forgot your name because that's how fine you are. He's never gonna forgive you. I, I forgot uh-huh. your name because you're so fine. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> when they're that good looking, when you don't that, remember their names, Lisa? No, not at all. I, could, I was just seeing his face. But yeah, him and Nia in that movie, they were magical. They sparkled. Oh, you know what? I just thought of a good romantic one. Um, Let's hear it. Denzel, Mississippi Marsala. Oh, that's yeah. good romantic couple. Good story. Yes, a black man and an Indian woman. And it was that yes. film at the time. I remember it made such waves because so many people thought. Waves. Yes. You like see that. that. No, they they were like, that would never mm-hmm. happen. I had an Indian friend at the time right. who said, yeah, that was not at all realistic. And I thought, well, it will be after that movie with the, <laughs> right. with the heat that they generated. <laughs> you will have all types of Indian women looking for them on Denzel chat. <laughs> exactly. Ruth, before we let you go, as much as we hate to let you go, please come live with us. <laughs> we have one final question for you. 
for this okay. series, we're asking each of our guests a question we're calling My Five Movies. So here we go. Mm-hmm. If you could watch only the same five movies for the rest of your life, which five movies would you choose? Oh, okay. Um, it would be uh, Black Panther. Um, it would be um, a romantic film like... Um, Oh, that's a hard question. Wait, five movies that I have to see. Once Upon a Time in America. I love that. A Robert De Niro picture. That would be great. Um, um, Color Purple makes me feel good. So I put that on my list. Um, (laughs) uh, Terms of Endearment as fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Heartbreaking and fun. Maybe Love Story. Love Story. Love Story. Because I would want to sit down every one of the times you sometimes you want to sit down and with a box of tissues, you know, you don't want to think about things that are going wrong. You want to think about other things that would make you cry like beautiful love. I love all these all these cathartic cries that are in your top five list. I'm I'm here for it. I'm all about the like make me cry. Can I see that list and uh, curate it a little bit? And this question, this is a question that's going to come back and haunt you at like one o'clock in the morning I when know. you're trying to struggle, and you're like, "Oh, I should have said this." That's true. <laughs> Ruth Carter, you are a true trailblazer and an inspiration to so many women, both in Hollywood and beyond, especially to me. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you on our podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Oh, I had fun. Thanks, everyone. We're going to take a quick break, but don't worry, there's more from us coming right up. I was watching an episode of CNN's new series, The Movies, and they mentioned the John Hughes teen movies of the 1980s. And I want to take a few minutes to share how my relationship with those movies has changed over the years. Let's start this off by talking about John Hughes' movie, The Breakfast Club. I remember vividly the first time I saw it. My parents rented the movie for me and my older siblings to watch on a New Year's Eve in the mid-80s. In the movie are five characters, most of whom would never talk to each other in the hallways of their posh suburban school, are forced to spend an entire Saturday together in detention. Along the way, we see alliances form and break down. We watch the teens get up to no good. We hear confessions of abuse and neglect that the kids suffer through at home. And we hear the justifications the kids at the top make for ignoring the kids at the bottom. That New Year's Eve, I stayed up all night and rewatched The Breakfast Club a total of three times. The Breakfast Club seemed to me like the most important movie I'd ever seen. It was a movie that took teen life seriously, from the politics of popularity to the loneliness of not fitting in and the secrets that took place in our own homes. And I wasn't alone. The movie was widely celebrated by critics and adored by a generation of young people, and it wasn't the only John Hughes teen movie to achieve such success. There was Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Pretty in Pink, Weird Science, Some Kind of Wonderful, and Sixteen Candles. In less than five years, Hughes wrote and or directed half a dozen teen films that made young people feel truly seen, and I devoured them all. But 
Admittedly, watching his films, I sometimes experienced moments of deep discomfort. I didn't talk about these moments at the time. I didn't know how, in my mostly white world, for example, to vocalize how much it hurt to watch Long Duck Dong, an Asian exchange student character in Sixteen Candles, who was nothing more than a clown-like caricature of my identity. And I didn't know how to explain why it bothered me so much that, other than Long Duck Dong, John Hughes chose never to let any other people of color have speaking roles in his films. Whether he meant to or not, Hughes seemed to be sending the message that, while he cared about the complex internal lives of teens, he really only saw white kids as real people. Looking closer at John Hughes' films today, through my adult eyes, I feel bad for my younger self, and for all the other young people who adored his movies. If his were truly the best in teen cinema, what else were we watching that was worse? Fortunately, teen films have come a long way in the decades since John Hughes. There are films that center on poor, gay, black kids like Moonlight, and films that have multicultural groups of friends. And yes, there are even movies that put Asian people at the center, giving them rich internal lives, like To All the Boys I Loved Before. All of these films in some way have John Hughes to thank for paving the way. More than any other filmmaker before him, he depicted a world in which teens' concerns were validated. But again, he was very selective about whose concerns mattered and whose didn't. And I'm so grateful to live in a world where that's slowly beginning to change, and where hopefully the long duck-dongs are becoming a thing of the past. And that's a wrap, as they say. If you're like us and can't get enough movies in your life, check out CNN's new TV series, The Movies, airing Sunday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on CNN and on CNN.com go. From executive producers Tom Hanks, Gary Getzman, and Mark Herzog, The Movies is a fascinating exploration of movies throughout the decades, and it shows the cultural, societal, and political shifts that frame the evolution of American cinema. You can also visit CNN.com slash The Movies for more. If you liked this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. And subscribe. And of course, leave us a five-star rating and a comment while you're there. This episode was produced by Amy Eason, Elizabeth Roberts, and Emma Soslowski. This is Lisa, Sandra, and Kristen. Go to the movies. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> 